0: you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Isaiah. And this morning we will see how Isaiah was preaching the gospel to the people of Israel, uh, the people of Jerusalem, of Zion, and we will see the significance of uh, Advent and how we celebrate Advent this morning. Uh, we celebrate Advent during the season of Christmas, uh, and we look forward we look back and rejoice with Christ's coming, but we also look forward to Christ's returning. And so, as we highlighted prophecy this morning, this passage is a prophetic passage. Of course, it's a passage that looks forward to uh, for the people of Israel at this time, forward, forward to their deliverance and what will come through uh, through Cyrus the Persian as he delivers the people of Israel. They're in bondage and exile. And, uh, and God's going to deliver them. And so it's a it's a message challenging them, calling them to look, to see your God. Proclaim him on the mountaintops. So if you found your place in Isaiah chapter 40, say amen. And follow along as I read through verse 11. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity ended has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand, of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let every rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this passage, open our eyes to see the awesome wonder of your word. Open our minds to understand it and our hearts and our lives to be gripped by the wonderful truth and the message of your salvation the message of your return so that we will eternally dwell with you in your presence. And so, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and we ask your blessing on our time together holy spirit we invite your presence as we as we sit under your word and rejoice and and love you corporately together as a body instruct us now in your word father it's in christ's name we pray amen jane winstead writes in the late 1860s life was good for anna Anna was married to a successful lawyer. They were living in the north side suburb of Chicago with five children. They had four girls, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, Tanetta, and one son. Life was great until 1870 when their four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. They were devastated. Well, the the next year wasn't any better. In October of 1871, the Great Chicago Fire broke out and, and it destroyed most of Chicago and with it most of their own financial investments. But God had been good, even though their finances were mostly depleted. Their home had been spared, and they had their family. A few years later, in 1873, Anna's health was failing, and so hoping to put behind the tragic loss of their son and the fire, they planned a trip to Europe. They would sail on a French vessel to Europe and uh, them with their four daughters. And they had aspirations of going and and assisting evangelist Dwight L. Moody and, and Ira D. Sankey in revival as they were preaching and conducting these revivals in England. They planned to leave in November, but God had other plans for Anna's husband. The day they were to set sail for Europe, he had a business emergency and he couldn't leave, not wanting to disappoint his wife and his daughters. He sent them on ahead, and he planned to follow on another ship a few days later. Well, in November 22nd of 1873, that steamer vessel that his wife and girls were on, it was struck by a British iron sailing ship, the Lockern. The steamer with Anna and her four daughters aboard sank within 12 minutes in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Eighty-one passengers were all that survived of the 307 with the crew and the members Anna was taken to Cardiff, Wales, where she telegraphed her husband the brief and heartbreaking news saved alone what shall i do all four daughters had drowned as had drowned and as soon as he received her telegram he left chicago without delay to bring his wife home anna later spoke of of the account she Said she was violently sucked downward, and baby Tanetta was torn from her arms by a collision with some heavy debris. With a blow so violent that Anna's arm was severely bruised, and she flailed at the water trying to catch her baby. Anna caught Tanetta's gown for just a moment before another smashing blow tore the little girl out of her arms forever. Reaching out again, all she could find was a man's leg and corduroy trousers she tugged, and Anna, barely conscious, was then swirled around with a whirlwind before surfacing near the boat. She instinctively clung onto a small plank, and next thing she recalled was the splash of an oar as she lay at the bottom of a small boat. The pain in her body was nothing compared to the pain in her heart as she realized that her four daughters had been lost in the disaster after Anna was rescued, there was a pastor on board of that boat, and his name was Nathaniel Weiss. He had he had gone along with a group of ministers traveling to also go to the revivals that Dwight L. Moody was preaching. He remembered hearing Anna say, God gave me four daughters, now they've been taken from me. Someday I'll understand why. And she was utterly devastated. Many of the survivors watched Anna, closely fearing that she may try to take her life, but in her grief and despair, Anna remembered something. She heard the Lord speak in a a brief, small voice. You were saved for a purpose. And she remembered this. She remembered a friend having once said, It's easy to be grateful to God when you have so much good going on, but take care that you're not a fair-weather friend to God. I share that story to share... And maybe help us identify, at least at the heart of where the people of Israel perhaps were. Not not at the time of Isaiah writing, but certainly as they would look back and read this prophecy that Isaiah has written in Isaiah chapter forty. A hundred years later they would be in exile, they would be struggling greatly. And while the means of arriving on the doorsteps of hopelessness and despair were very different for Anna and the people of God, the difficulty and pain of their situation was very, very similar. You see, the dangerous temptation, whenever we go through hardships and trials such as this, difficult seasons in life, the dangerous temptation is to doubt God's faithfulness. It's to let go of all hope and and, and to let go of all trust in God. Such was the case for the children of Israel as they entered into exile, as they entered into this difficult season in life, and such was the temptation for Anna to let go, to wonder where where her hope would come from. How could God allow such a thing to happen? We must understand the devastating geography of Judah's circumstances, their Their continued rebellious sin will have a devastating and disastrous consequence on their direction as a people and as a nation. They'll find themselves in a foreign land, living under foreign oppression and subjected to foreign rule, torn from their homeland. And as the people of God, they'll experience great despair. They'll be living under oppression Families will be separated. Lives will be uprooted. Everything they own will be torn to shreds. It will be leveled. Their village will be ransacked and pillaged. The material loss and property loss that they will go through will be accompanied by many untimely and unmerciful deaths of loved ones. Devastation is a light word to describe what they will go through as they enter into the exile. And it really doesn't even begin to describe the life scene for the people of Judah, of Jerusalem, of, of Zion. You see, Isaiah chapter 40, it really begins a new section in the book of Isaiah. A message of, of comfort. Isaiah is delivering this message of comfort and hope to a people who, when they find themselves in this dark, despairing place, they will hopefully, prayerfully read this message and they will, they will hear the word of God coming to them. This is a burdened and sin ravaged group of people. They're in exile and this message of comfort that Isaiah delivers is meant to meet them in their despair and it's meant to speak tenderly to them. Chapter 40 looks forward to the day when Cyrus the Persian, as I said earlier, will defeat Babylon and, and send the people of Israel back, our people of, uh, of captivity, back into Jerusalem to inhabit the city. But his words really speak to a greater, a greater hope than just rebuilding the temple and repopulating the city of Jerusalem. His words speak to that time when Christ would come and deliver his people from sin. His words speak to the time when when God in flesh, God the Son, would step down into our humanity and walk the earth and live a sinless and perfect life, journey to the cross, die, and be resurrected. Isaiah answers the difficult, unvoiced questions of God's people here in chapter 40 through chapter 55. And and as he does, he, he, he answers these questions. Get this, as they're in the midst of traversing the darkness of exile, they're walking through it. And, and some, some hundred years before, he's writing this message so that as they walk through exile, they will read it and they will be encouraged. And, and the answer Isaiah provides is one of assurance that God has not abandoned his people. He has, he has not been defeated by the Babylonian gods. In fact, God is at work even at that moment. And we hear today, God God is at work even in this moment. And the message Isaiah has for the people who are in exile is make ready. Prepare the way for God's coming. His advent is near. Get ready. He's about to do a work. He's about to come. And so this morning, it's from that perspective that I, I want us to hear and to see God's word, his prophecy and his certainty. And so the first point this morning that that I want us to, to catch is hear the kindness of the Lord. And I say hear the kindness of the Lord, because look at what he says in verses one and two. Comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says your God. God is speaking. His people need to hear. They desperately need to hear a word from the Lord. They have been struggling and despairing even of life itself. And so he says there, comfort, oh comfort my people. This double reference to comfort, it's a well-known tool that's used in Hebrew poetry to, to really highlight and emphasize the intensity of Of what's going on here. In this word that's being spoken to the people. And in verses 1 and 2 here. God is speaking. uh, Almost with a, a megaphone. Calling out to the people. To hear him. Oswald in his commentary says. These words of comfort speak. Of the compassion expressed. To someone who's grieving over. The death of a family member. In these words of. Of simply comfort, of, of encouragement. We see a, a, a grand portrait of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness and His compassion upon His people. And in these pages of prophecy, uh, we see God's hand at work. Even though God knows His people, get this, even though God knows His people will persist in the sinful rebellion that they are in as He's writing, as He's speaking. And they will continue forsaking Him. He promises in advance to redeem them. And He follows up this double command. Comfort, O comfort. It's a command in the Hebrew. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. He follows it up with covenantal language. My people, says your God, showing ownership. This is what Jeremiah the prophet speaks about in chapter 32 in verse 37, it says, behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And then listen to what he says. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Right. This is covenant language. My people. I'll be your God. This is the God of the universe, creator of of all cosmos. And he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. They will belong to me. verse 2 really just continues this language. It says in verse 2, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Or if you're using ESV, it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But literally... Literally, what this verse says is, speak tenderly to the heart. That's literally what it says here. Speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem. Beckon them. Call out to them. Say to them, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Take encouragement. Take comfort in the midst of your despair, in the midst of not knowing which way to look and where to turn. Take comfort in this. I'm your God. You are my people. It's not just a message of comfort and kindness. It's a persuasive invitation to love and to encouragement from God to his people. It's an invitation calling them out of paralysis of the difficult circumstances they are in to the realm of faith to look to God and to trust God. So he says, call out to her in verse two. call out to her, speak kindly to her and call out to her. That her warfare has ended. That her, that her iniquity has been removed. That word warfare is ended. It, it's significant. It, it means their hard service has been finished. It's done. And, and the iniquity that has been upon her has been removed. In other words, the punishment for her sins has been accepted by God. And their time of hard service was over. God had permitted their suffering because of their disobedience and forsaking Him, but we learn from the people of God that rebellion against God has consequences. We see that fleshed out in the nation of Israel, in the people of Jerusalem and of Zion. There is, con- there are consequences for living a life in rebellion to God. We we try to teach this and instill this in our children, right, parents? We. We want to help them have a healthy sense of, of respect for authority. And so we instruct them early how to, how to respect authority and how to, to follow and submit under obedience. And then we do the same thing as we, as we have our children grow up into youth age. They, they are prayerfully learning a, a healthy respect for, for authority and obedience. And as they get into uh, early adulthood even, they have developed this healthy respect for authority. And it's teaching them all along that we ought to have a healthy respect for authority to God. Trying to grab their hearts and pull pull them in and teach them not to rebel. Don't rebel against your parents. Don't rebel against God because here are the consequences. It landed the nation of Israel in despair. Difficulty. He says, you've received from the Lord's hand double for your sins, right? In verse 2, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It doesn't mean that God's people suffered an unmerited double portion for their sin. Instead, it's emphasizing the completeness of their suffering. It was full. They suffered for their sin. But get this, the comfort God offers isn't a repayment for their suffering. That's not what's being, that's not the transaction being made here. The comfort is is the comfort of unmerited forgiveness. And it it points us forward to the unmerited grace that we have received in Christ Jesus Himself and His suffering, His suffering violently, His suffering death and, and His resurrection, so that He has satisfied the debt of iniquity of Their sins and of ours and of those to come. This is the portrait of the gospel that Isaiah is painting for us to see. We, like the people of Jerusalem, must take heed and do battle against the temptations that come upon us as believers like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:22 2, we must flee temptation or, or those youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on a God from who call on God from a pure heart see here's the thing as we're in advent season i want to want to ask you this morning are you listening have you heard have you heard the tender invitation Of love and comfort that God offers in Christ. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. The comfort is not that you and I could ever fully pay for our sin, but it's that we have one who has paid for our sin. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has satisfied the wrath of God against sin their war is over they are suffering under the the hardship their hard service has ended he says and secondly this morning as we consider advent this time during christmas and that which is to come as christ's return i want to want us to see what he says here that we are to prepare the way, he calls the the people of Jerusalem, he calls the people of Israel to prepare the way in verses 3 through 5. That is why, so the glory of God will soon be revealed, he says. Look, verse 3, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The glory of God will soon be revealed. That's the message. The voice of verse 3 is calling out. A voice calling. It's what Terry read earlier from the Gospel of Mark. It's what John the Baptist is quoting as we have recently walked through John chapter 1, verse 23. John quoting, he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, this is why we can say their encouragement is not dependent upon their changing circumstances. God is calling them to look to Him. It's not by their own suffering that they've satisfied God's wrath against sin. No, their encouragement their encouragement has to do with the reality that God is coming. And He says, prepare the way. He's entering humanity. And so in verses 3 and 4... This voice calling, he says, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, right? The rough ground, the rough terrain, let it become a plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. What's the idea? On this day, what they would do is a king or dignitary was coming in town. They would begin constructing a road and and making this road smooth. They would remove all of the obstacles that would be standing in the way so that the king or the dignitary that's coming would have easy access into the city. They'd want it to be as smooth and as easy of a travel as possible. That's what he's saying for the people of Israel. Make ready, make a way, prepare But the point isn't that they've got to clean up all of the stuff in their lives in order for God to come, for God is coming. And the message is there's nothing that's going to stop Christ from coming. No mountain, no rugged terrain, no valley. It will all be made smooth and ready. But get this here's what he is calling the people to do he's calling them to yield. He's calling them to quit trusting in themselves, to quit trusting in their vain idols, to quit trusting in a a covenant with all the other nations that are surrounding them to protect them from the coming Babylonians. Guess what? They missed it. They didn't heed the call. The point isn't that, hear this, we must clean up our own lives before we come to God in order to be acceptable to him. No, the point is we must yield our lives to him in ready submission so that he might do the work of purification in and through us. Now, Isaiah speaks of the certainty of the Lord's coming. Nothing, nothing can stand in his way. And so in verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, you see, then, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together Fulfillment in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we what? We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see what the Gospel of John is doing and showing us the glory of God has come, and how, as God's people, the disciples would say, we beheld His glory. And in First John 1.1, the epistle of 1 John, John writes, what, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see what he's saying here? They've been in the presence of the glory of God. They've seen the glory of God in Christ. They've touched him with their hands. They've, they've been around him. They've walked with him. The call is to prepare the way. To yield oneself to God to make the way ready. As we consider this Advent season, have you prepared the way? I mean, is, is your life yielded to Christ? Daily, are you living yielded to Christ? Have you believed in His first coming, the first Advent? Are you ready for his second coming, His return? Because He came the first time just as God said He would. And He will come again just as God says He will. He will return. But not only must we pr- prepare the way, not only does Isaiah call for the people to prepare the way and to be ready, we must, we must also keep the faith. We must also keep the faith. Look at verses 6-8. through eight. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. You see, God's glory is eternal and his his word is enduring. We'll see that in verse eight, but but the word of our God stands forever. These verses explain to us the the transitory and temporal temporal nature of of our own existence. They kind of throw a flashlight or or a magnifying glass on it so that we might might see it, and and we might see it in comparison with God's eternal existence. Verses 6 through 8 reveal that and show that to us. In fact, in verse 6, it challenges mankind to look unto God and to realize that our lives are but a fleeting season of grass. Like a flower of the field, these physical bodies won't last forever. Anybody ever experience pain every morning when they wake up is that is that a new uh is that something new in in your in your daily routine, or has that always been that way? you know it it's a fitting picture for us a fitting reminder of reality, isn't it? it's a fitting reminder and even today we have you know we have pictures and, and pictures kind of allow us to look back and then we can see the progression of our lives quite easily can't we in in youth we we have beauty and strength but eventually those give way to the years and they're replaced by lines and loss of muscle tone you know it's inevitable if God blesses us to live long enough, we will experience that. It's an inevitable conclusion that we all must recognize. Even if we're in college, we must recognize this. The short, crisp memory of our youth, it fades away. And as we age and, and like time, all things just kind of seem to run together. There's an article in Business Week in the March... 2006 edition, I know that's a little bit dated, but I think it's still fitting for us to hear. Retirement is close for about 77 million baby boomers, it said. Meantime, the anti-aging industry is trying to keep them young enough to enjoy it. Doctors are prescribing large doses of supplements that they believe prevent the decay of the body's organs. Human growth hormones are reported to increase muscle mass and improve memory and heart function. Natural estrogen and progesterone are are believed to guard against Alzheimer's and osteoporosis as well as to relieve symptoms of menopause. Testosterone is believed to aid memory and bone mass and to relieve menopause and to help other functions. The American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine reports that the anti-aging industry annually makes $56 billion dollars and at least $79 billion of income is expected by 2009. I don't know, I know. I'm sure that it's far exceeded that by 2013, almost 2014. More than 1,500 doctors have been certified as anti-aging practitioners. Most of these alternative treatments may be scientifically unproven, but are supported by vast anecdotal evidence. One person who's become convinced of their effectiveness is retired dentist, Dr. Howard Benedict, 61. He spends $10,000 a year on testosterone gel, injections of human growth hormones, and 30 vitamins and supplements. He claims to feel like a 20-year-old. I don't know if that's true or not. He claims to feel like a 20-year-old, or if he even remembers what a 20-year-old is supposed to feel like. Here's the reality. In spite of our best efforts we are forced in one way or another to recognize the truth of verse seven that life is a fleeting vapor read it with me the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows upon it surely the people are grass you know this calls our attention to the the play on words for blows the breath of lord blows upon it the word for ruach meaning wind our spirit in hebrew just as the the hot wind wilts the grass surely our lives are subjected to the breath of god showing us that that even in spite of our greatest efforts man really doesn't control his destiny we don't know when the end will come we don't know how much longer we will walk the earth But when man examines his life, he must recognize that God truly is our only hope. And that's what Isaiah is pointing the people to see. Isaiah challenges us not to trust in our own selves, but to place our trust in God and and in His word. Because God's word endures forever. Verse 8. And our hope remains in God even when circumstances seem hopeless. Our eyes must be fixed on the reality of God and His Word. And that is this. If God proclaimed it, then it will surely come to pass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. We consider hearing the kindness of the Lord, Him inviting us this morning to that tender that tender mercy. And we see the call of Advent to prepare the way, to make ready for His coming. The challenge from Isaiah to, to keep the faith in the midst of difficult circumstances and, and realize our temporal nature and in light of God's eternal nature. Finally this morning we come really to the high point of, Well, of the verses we're looking at this morning, the high point, if we had time to walk through the rest of chapter 40, it's amazing to see the grand picture of God that Isaiah paints in light of the nations. Verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span? Verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust, On the scales, behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Here is your God. Here is the awesome God of all creation. But in verses 9-11 through to the advent and to the prophecy that Isaiah is speaking, look at what he tells them. He tells them, proclaim the message. Proclaim the message. He says, get yourself up on a high mountain. In verses 9 through 11, we, we have this portrait of both the warrior and the shepherd in verses 10 and 11. But in verse 9, there is this call that he issues forth. It's the call to get yourself up on the mountain, right? Not just on any mountain, on a high mountain. Get yourself up to that high place, O Zion, bearer of good news, Zion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They are to be the bearers of the good news, of this good news that Isaiah is bringing forward. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. This encouragement, this tender language that he's speaking to the heart. That God has not abandoned his people, he has not been defeated by the false gods of the day. No, he is with them, he has been doing a work. In them so that they may turn back to Him, but God has not abandoned them. And so the message, the message that He's sharing is all is not lost. God is still in control. He has not failed His people, He is faithful. His word hasn't perished, and His will for His people has not been thwarted. His advent is near. His word, it's not perishing, it stands forever. And in Jeremiah 1.12, I think about what Jeremiah the prophet said when he says he's watching over his word to perform it. You see there in verse 9, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. That is with great encouragement. With a strong proclamation, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up and do not fear. Do not worry about what the other nations are saying or doing. You proclaim this message. Church like Zion, like Jerusalem, we are the bearers of good news when we consider what he's telling Zion and Jerusalem do proclaim this message, we must also see that we are the bearers of good news to proclaim this message to the nations. Salvation has come in Christ through the first advent. The atonement for sin has been made and redemption for God's people has been paid. Christ has made propitiation for the sins of the people and as sure as the first advent, redemption, and rescue of God's people from sin came, so the second advent will certainly come. For listen, there is no rugged terrain or mountain that can keep Christ from returning. The first advent was about the suffering servant, the second advent is about the, the conquering king. He will come, verse 10 says, he will come mighty and strong you see it? Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense be for him. Listen, what he's saying here is this is a call for his people to place their trust in him, not in the pagan nations. The strong arm of the Lord has no match. There is no power that can defeat him. For Israel, their strength and protection does not come from covenants with other nations. It it comes only from God. It will not be found in serving false gods. It would only be found in devotion and service to the one true God. And I would call us to recognize that in our own lives that salvation only comes from the one true God. We will not find strength and protection from covenants with any other, but only from Him. Let us not be like the children of Israel as they placed their hope in Uzziah's military might on the day of their enjoying much entering the land and then settling into complacency like Israel did. In fact, Deuteronomy six, if you recall, and go back to the those that book of Deuteronomy in chapter four, where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then he says Take these words and write them on your forehead. Put them on the doorpost of the house, right? When you sit down, when you write, everything you do, let it be centered around this word, around this devotion to God. And then we look and see what begins to happen for the people of Israel, for the city of Jerusalem as they're trusting in all of these other gods. In fact, if you go through Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6 says, you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You see what they're going through, and their rebellion, and their trusting in others instead of trusting in God, has brought about this consequence. But Let us hear this. Let us not trust in military might for protection of our comfortable way of living that would call us to forsake God as well. Now let that sink in for a moment because we live in a nation that is the greatest superpower the world has ever known. And sometimes in our Christianity, we begin to take for granted the freedoms that we have. And we begin to trust more in the sovereign power of a nation than the sovereign power of God. And I want us just to be aware of that, just to catch a glimpse that's that's so deep for us this morning. It's so deep-seated. We have grown up for generations <coughs> in this way. And the challenge for us this morning is much like the people of God in captivity, in exile. They have trusted in their sovereign power as a nation under Uzziah's leadership and military might. As a people of God, I want to ask us, what are we pursuing? Are we really preparing the way? Are we really proclaiming this message from the high places? Are we worried about all the other stuff? Isaiah calls us to forsake the vain idols of the day, the God of self, the God of materialism. Listen, don't get caught up in the lie and the seduction of the marketers. And I'm not going to rail on, on, on Christmas time and the gift giving here. But listen, Christmas is not about consumerism. You know this. It's about Christ. It's not about materialistic living. It's about missional living. I didn't even go as far to say the real reason that, that people can't celebrate Christmas across the world is not because they don't have means, it's because they don't know the Messiah. They don't know Christ. It's not because they don't have means, they don't know the Messiah. Don't allow the vain trappings of our culture to lure you away from Advent and dull our eyes from the reality of God's mission through Christ's first advent and the very real prophecy that he is coming again now i want to return to the soft tone of verse 11 but the encouraging and the, the joyous tone we see in verse 10 that his arm is ruling for him he comes with might and in verse 11 we so that's the warrior verse 10 verse 11 is the shepherd like a shepherd Listen, he will tend his flock. And get this, in his arm, one arm, right? Not both arms, but in his arm, he will gather the lambs. So one arm, he's the warrior. The other arm, he's gathering the lambs. You see this almighty, powerful, humble king who has come, humble, serving a savior who has come, and, and this great, exalted, mighty king who who will also Come, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Let me, let me tell you this morning that even right now he is, he is tending his flock. He's working the lives of his people. He is caring. He is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, and I'm humble in heart. In his arms, he gathers the lamb, even as now he's gathering his people and he carries them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing youth from infancy to maturity. Get the picture. Our shepherd leads us. He is a good shepherd. And from the first advent to the second, the shepherd is leading his people. Are you ready to proclaim the message from the High places. Are you living in such a way where you are trusting? Keeping the faith? Hearing the kindness of the Lord? Horatio. That was Anna's husband's name. I didn't want to give it away earlier. Horatio Spafford. They later had another son and another daughter. The son again named Horatio Jr. And again, he passed away at age four with scarlet fever. The daughter later wrote, In Chicago, Father searched his life for explanation. Until now, it had flowed gently as a river. Spiritual peace and worldly security had sustained his early years, his family, life, and and his home. But now all around him, people were asking the unvoiced question, what guilt had brought this sweeping tragedy to Anna and Horatio Spafford? Father became convinced, the daughter says, that God was kind and that he would see his children again in heaven. This thought calmed his heart. But it was to bring father into open conflict with what was then the Christian world. To father, he was he was passing through the valley of the shadow of death, but his faith came through triumphant and strong. To pick up where we left off earlier, as Horatio was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean to get Anna, the captain of the ship called to Horatio. He called him to the bridge and he informed him, I I believe we're now passing the place where your wife's vessel was wrecked. The water's three miles deep here. That night, that night alone in his cabin, Horatio Spafford penned the words to his famous hymn, That we all know so well, it is well with my soul. Horatio's faith in God never faltered. And the song, it is well with my soul, goes like this, for those who might not know it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day. That's the second advent. Haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I ask you this morning, is it well with your soul, Christian? Have you found yourself being a fair-weather friend of God? coming to Him at those times when you are having good and and fun times and then whenever things get difficult, walking away? Have you heard the kindness of the Lord? Are you yielded to Him? Are you trusting in Christ for the eternal hope that only He can offer? Are you ready for His return Church, are we proclaiming the good news of the gospel that Christ has come and that he is returning? I want to challenge you this morning to respond to the Lord as as he leads you. Maybe you want to come and just spend some time in prayer reflecting on the Advent season. Maybe even with your family you want to come and kneel down and pray. I I don't know. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do this morning in a time of response Maybe it's to stay right where you are and just to worship him and to sing his praise. Or maybe this morning you recognize that you don't truly know Jesus Christ, the God that we're speaking of. That you've not truly heard from him, that you haven't prepared the way and that you need to surrender your life to Christ as Lord. And if that be the case this morning, I want to challenge you and encourage you to come up here and speak with me. to find me after service and speak with me about what it means to trust Christ as Lord to surrender your life to him and have this hope, the hope of the nations that he Isaiah has been speaking about in this text this morning. Let us pray. Father we come before you we thank you for your word we thank you for the certainty of your word and how you are very tender with us and You are compassionate toward us. You are encouraging toward us to to come and to see you. And Lord, help us to be faithful in the mission you've called us to, to proclaim the message. Give us strength, Father, to live for you and for your glory. Inspire us, Lord. Encourage us by your Holy Spirit that we may walk faithfully after you, following you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?